Let me ask you as we begin uh, to bow your heads, please. Father, we, uh, we begin by saying we are so broken over the news this week from Colorado. Evil has again reminded us of how fallen and broken this world is. And Father, we don't want to get so accustomed to evil that we lose our capacity to be stunned by its wretchedness. To lose a loved one, especially a child, is hard. Even if expected. But to lose someone totally unexpected is a pain so deep, God, that only you can understand it. And somehow it does help to know that you understand. In fact, it helps to know that you grieve and hate evil more than we do. And it also helps to know that you're the God of all comfort. So may your presence and your comfort be heavy in the lives of those who have been so wrongly devastated this week. In ways that we can't see yet, may may the love of Jesus somehow be evident among those who have been so devastated. Things like this make us, God, say, we hope Jesus comes soon. But until he comes, deliver us from the temptation of despair and of thinking the only way to deal with evil is to return evil. But help us to believe that good conquers evil. And right now, the world needs us to be good. Help us be so for Jesus' sake. Amen. The next two weekends, I am going to be gone. In fact, I'm going to be out of the country. You're not going to miss me because you are going to be blessed with the preaching and presence of Jonathan Stormont, who's going to be back with us, and I know you're going to enjoy him immensely. I get on a plane later today with my wife to take a trip that every real Christian wants to make at least once in their life. That's right. I am finally going to visit the Holy Lands. My clubs are packed, and this time tomorrow, I will be in Scotland. (laughs) This is actually the culmination of an almost 50-year-old dream of my father. He turns 80 in October. And he has always wanted to play golf in Scotland with his sons. And so we're taking him along with our wives. I'm sure we'll have to go see at least a couple of castles between rounds. And I hope you will pray for us while we are gone, especially as we have to endure and battle that 55-degree heat every day. (laughs) Probably we would not have chosen this particular time to go if we had planned ahead better. We didn't realize that the Olympics 
are also beginning in Great Britain as we are there. And I'm sure that will create a few travel situations. But I have always loved the Olympics and the ideal behind them. Because underneath the games is the idea that the world needs reconciliation. Nations are estranged and politics has not brought us together. Economics has failed. And so the idea that sport could bring nations together is appealing. And yet the reality is it rarely happens. In fact, you may have seen pictures this past spring of a riots that took place right after the Euro Cup match between Poland and Russia. Thousands of people went into the streets trying to do serious harm to other human beings. 6,000 Polish police had to use water cannons and tear gas and even rubber bullets to stop the chaos because it wasn't really about the score of a game. You see, underneath was the unresolved tension of the memory of the Polish people of their decades of subjugation to a communist regime that the Russian government installed and supported. And they still haven't forgiven the Russian people for it. See, The reality is that real reconciliation requires forgiveness, and real forgiveness is no gain. Because real forgiveness, forgiving your all, requires being willing to lose. That's why on every campus I wanted the teaching this weekend to follow right after communion. Because as we take bread and as we take wine every week, we remember that Jesus didn't return evil for evil. He conquered evil with good. He won by losing. And we recommit to the way of Jesus because our world is crossways. And it needs the witness of the way of the cross. And so Jesus said, if you want leverage in the world, if you want to get the attention of the world, love one another. This is job one for disciples. This is what we must excel at if we fail at everything else. And it means learning to forgive our all. And so Paul says, Ephesians chapter 4, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. You see, what he is saying there is that anotherers take responsibility for the way they respond to wounds. It's on our shoulders to make the first move. Get rid of bitterness. Be kind and compassionate. 
forgive each other. When it comes to relational discord, anotherers take the initiative. And you might be thinking, well, Paul doesn't know my story. Paul isn't interested in your story. He is not interested in whether or not you have a legitimate reason for hard feelings. And by the way, he does have some credibility because he's writing from prison. And nothing about his imprisonment was fair or just. And he is saying that you, like me, may not be responsible for your wound. But like me, you are definitely responsible for what you do with it. And you will be wounded in the kingdom of God. Jesus never said to anyone, follow me, be my disciple, and people won't hurt you anymore. In fact, just the opposite. He even taught us to pray about our wounds. In the model prayer in Matthew 6, he said, pray like this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus says, in my kingdom, you are going to have debtors. What are you going to do about it? Several years ago, I read in Reader's Digest, a guy that was going to the Blockbuster video store. He did not know there was a police stakeout waiting to arrest a man inside. So as he's casually walking to the store to go in, the man they're waiting on comes out and immediately police jump out of cars and from behind the building and they race toward the man and they rush him and they grab him and they wrestle him to the ground and they put his arms behind his back and they handcuff him and they sit on him. And this guy who's totally unsuspecting is wide-eyed. He said a policeman looked up at him and said, when they say the movie's due at noon the next day, they mean it. And we've all seen people completely overreact to things that are past due. What about you? Because somebody today owes you something. Maybe you are owed an explanation or an apology or a chance. Or a second chance. Maybe somebody owes you some respect. Or owes you the truth for a change. Or maybe some pledged faithfulness. And what Jesus is saying to all of us in the kingdom that have debtors is that it is a violation of the core ethic of his community to be a relational bill collector. And I know that doesn't sound fair. In fact, Peter even said, how far do we take this, Lord? Seven times? And Jesus said, let me tell you a story. There was a man... 
in so much debt, he couldn't pay it back in a hundred lifetimes. And his master, in a stunning act of mercy, just wiped the slate clean. And then that guy finds a neighbor that owes him a very small amount and who needs more time and throws him into prison. And Jesus said, word of it got back to the master. And the master got angry, called him in, chewed him out, and threw him in prison forever. Two things about that story intrigue me. First, word of it got back to the master. We'll know this. Word of unforgiveness always gets back to the master. And second, I am intrigued by the fact the master was not angry at the presence of so much debt in his servant. He was angry at the absence of so little mercy. Anotherers forgive their all because all has been forgiven by their master. But I know it doesn't sound fair. And some of you are thinking, I just can't go there. Because it's not fair. And so you have owned your resentment as if it was your right. But the reality is, bitterness is not a fairness problem. Bitterness is an unwillingness problem. The unmerciful servant thought it was his right to demand payback for his brother's wrong. So Jesus summed up the real problem in three words, Matthew 18, verse 30. He was unwilling. You don't stumble into bitterness. You get there on purpose. Relational bill collecting is a choice. And the refusal to forgive is the declaration of personal sovereignty. I want you to hear this. When you refuse to forgive, you're making an announcement that your will has a right to a throne. Now, Jesus has his will and his throne, and that's how they do things in his kingdom. But this is my will and my throne, and that's not how we're going to operate in my kingdom. You are giving evidence that you don't really want things on earth to be like they are in heaven. And your stubborn refusal is stunning because you are dealing with others in a way that you do not want or expect God to deal with you. 
You are not wanting or expecting on the day you stand before God to hear him say, you know, I tried to forgive all your debts and I wrote most of them off. But you remember that one time, man, that chapped me and I can't get over it. It's still on the books. You still owe me. You don't want to hear that from God, do you? You don't expect to hear that from God. Well, God expects something too. God expects that those to whom he has granted such an undeserved change of status will have a changed heart. In fact, God gets emotional about this. Jesus said the master was angry. Not that kind of reckless rage, but that kind of anger that comes from a deep, deep hurt. In fact, do you remember our earlier text, be kind and compassionate, get rid of bitterness and forgive each other? Ephesians 4, 31 and 2. Look at the verse right in front. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you were sealed for the day of redemption. When you do not forgive, when you cherish bitterness as your right because you are owed, you grieve God. Charles Flood in his book, Lee, The Last Years, says the general was visiting a woman in Kentucky that took him out to her front yard where there was a tree that you could tell was once tall and glorious, but it had been badly damaged by Union artillery fire, and she was very resentful. And she complained bitterly to the general, expecting him to sympathize with her and criticize the North. And Flood says that Lee was silent for a moment and then he simply said, cut it down, my dear madam, and forget it. It's not that we can't forgive. It's a willingness issue. We won't forgive. And the kingdom won't come until we let some stuff go. Doesn't sound fair, does it? But you need to understand forgiveness is an unfairness solution. There are Some people in your life right now that do not deserve to be forgiven. But anotherers forgive not because other people deserve it. We forgive because we did not deserve it. And God gave it to us anyway. Nothing is more unfair than your Salvation. 
So Paul could say Colossians 3 verse 13, you bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. In other words, remember that God let us off the hook by hooking his own son to a tree. And so we don't get hung up on whether or not that person deserves to be forgiven. In fact, we don't even get hung up on whether or not they want to be forgiven. You understand, of course, the difference between reconciliation and forgiveness. Now, reconciliation is two-way. I cannot be reconciled to you if you don't want to be reconciled to me. But forgiveness is one way. I can forgive you whether or not you deserve it. I can forgive you whether or not you ask for it or want it. I can forgive you whether or not you're alive. Forgiveness is my choice. Kingdom forgiveness is not an emotion. It's a choice rooted in one's experience of the unfair grace of God. Now, I think that might be why the Bible and history says that the earliest Christians would take communion every day. They lived in an evil world where they would lose their jobs, get thrown into prison, sometimes tortured and sometimes martyred. And so every day they'd take some bread and they'd take some wine and they would remember their story and they would say, we're not going to fight evil with evil. The world needs the witness of another way. And you know what? The world still does. So right now, I want to invite Chris Shelby to join me. Chris is one of our missionaries in Rwanda. We have awesome missionaries around the world, but one of the most popular places for our own members to visit has been Rwanda because of the amazing work they're doing there. In fact, we have some people there right now. And you need to know a little bit about Rwanda's history to appreciate what Chris and his team are doing. They've been there now almost four years, and I want everyone to know a little bit about uh, your context. So take a moment and tell us a little about the history of Rwanda. Well, good morning, church. It is a pleasure to be here with you this morning, to be among you. I bring you greetings from uh, Rwanda, from uh, my teammates and loved ones who are in Rwanda serving now in the kingdom of God. I bring you greetings from the Rwandan people. Rwanda is a beautiful place. It's a beautiful country. It's a, the people in Rwanda are beautiful and dear people. But what you need to know is that, that Satan has been writing a story of darkness in, in Rwanda and, and in that area of the world for, about, for a very long time. For about 100 years, the peoples of Rwanda have been fighting. Um, due to various reasons, uh, the fighting has been intense. The hatred has been strong and the betrayal has been unimaginable. Starting in 1959, the, the, the fighting in Rwanda became 
intense. It became state-sponsored. And one group of people, the Hutu people, the majority of Rwanda, rose up against the minority group in Rwanda, the Tutsis, and began summarily killing them uh, beginning in 1959. All of that culminated in 1994 in one of the darkest things that our world has ever seen. In April of 1994, uh, the nation of Rwanda went through a genocide. In a period of 100 days, almost 1 million Tutsi people were murdered by Hutus. One million people in three months were murdered by their neighbors, by their fellow church members, by their loved ones, by the people that they had lived side by side with for years. Rwanda has been a very dark place in our world. Maybe you remember that, 1994. And the world sat back and did nothing while one million people were murdered in 100 days. And what's confusing or perplexing about that is that Rwanda it was considered a Christian nation. And so how does that happen? Where were the churches during the genocide? Church, the, the people of God... And God himself is on trial in Rwanda today, brothers and sisters. You need to know that. Because during the genocide, so many Rwandans, so many of the Tutsi people thought, we'll go to the churches and we'll find safety in the churches. We'll, we'll go and the priests and the pastors and the church leaders, they'll take care of us. They will protect us. God will protect us. We will go and take refuge there. So thousands of people gathered up the belongings that they could carry, and they brought their children, and they, they lived in churches for a period of a few days or a few weeks. But I'm very sad to say today that, that so many of the pastors and the priests and the church leaders, they locked the doors they locked their people inside the churches. And they turned them over to the killing squads. And thousands of Rwandans were murdered in churches. The Hutu people, during the genocide, for six days, they would go and hunt their countrymen. And they would say they were doing their work during those six days. And then on Sunday, they would lay down their weapons, and they would get dressed up, and they would go and worship God. And then on Monday, they would pick back up their weapons and continue to commit genocide. Church, God is on trial. The people of God are on trial in Rwanda. So you can imagine the context in which Chris and his teammates are trying to bring the gospel. In a country that is suspicious of God talk, suspicious of churches, they're trying in a powerful new way to, to reimagine and reintroduce the teaching of Jesus. What's it like there? Well, you know, we, we don't particularly walk down the street and say, hello, I'm a missionary. It just it, it doesn't connect. It immediately 
causes a disconnect between us and the Rwandan people. And so, you know, we listen to our Rwandan brothers and sisters and, and church, they are demanding a different interpretation of what it means to be the church. And rightfully so. The nation of Rwanda has had churches and has had the gospel and has had the name of Jesus for a hundred years. But the Rwandan people are demanding and they're longing for something more than just people showing up to church buildings and, and worshiping uh, a God and then leaving on, on Sunday and living however you want to the rest of the week. They long to see people living out the commands, the beauty that is the kingdom of God, the commands of Jesus, and they long for people to be anotherers. They long to see the kingdom of God come in its fullness, its power. And that's what they're demanding, rightfully so. And these guys are doing it. Uh, I hope sometimes some of you can go uh, through what they're doing with street kids, through what they're doing uh, training young people in life skills, they are tangibly showing what the kingdom of God could look like if we took serious the teachings of Jesus. Give us, give us a tangible illustration of what's happening. Uh, I have a, a story to share with you this morning, church, of, uh, of some of my Rwandan friends. And I'm so it's one of the greatest honors that I have that, that I can call so many Rwandan people my friends. There's a, a group of university guys that, that I've become friends with that are a part of some of the things that we're trying to do in our organization. And, and they, sometime last year, they got together and they said, we want to get together and start praying to see way, a, a way that we can help somebody in our country. And so they began gathering together once a week, praying together, seeking out somebody that they might serve. They began contributing 500 francs every week so that they could have a, 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 some money to help somebody. And, you know, 500 francs is, is not very much. It's, it's less than a dollar. But for these guys, it's a sacrifice. They're in university. They don't have anything. And so they're, they're setting aside money. They're setting aside time. They're praying and seeking God's face on who they might conserve. And so finally, it got to the end of last year, right before New Year's, and, and they said, okay, we've got to decide who are we going to serve. And one of the guys spoke up, and he said, hey, there is this lady back in the village where I come from, and she's very old. She's, she's, uh, she's almost o- over 80 years old, and she is a widow, and she's blind, and she doesn't have anybody uh, to take care of her. And this is, this is her, and they call her grandmother. Um, as, a, tie, as a, a sign of respect. And, and they said, maybe we can serve, serve grandmother. And they, all the guys thought, you know what? This is it. This is what we need to do. And so they went on New Year's Day to seek out grandmother deep in the village of, of Rwanda. They had to go so far to find her. And they went on New Year's Day because New Year's Day is like the premier holiday in all of Rwanda, bigger than Christmas, bigger than anything. And they went on New Year's Day because they knew that grandmother probably would be alone. She doesn't have anybody to be with her. And so they went and they saw grandmother. And before they left, they bought her food and they bought her clothes. And they even bought a goat so, uh, to give to grandmother, which is a very nice gift in Rwanda. And they sought her out. And they went and they shared those things with her. And while they were there, they noticed that her house, 
probably would not survive the rainy season. And this is a picture of her house. This is where she lives. And it was, some of the walls were crumbling, and it was, uh, it was just in bad repair. And so they said, we can help her with this. We can strengthen her house. And so uh, they worked very hard that weekend, uh, re-mudding her house and making sure that her house was going to survive the rainy season. And here's a picture of the guys working so hard. It was a great weekend, and they had a wonderful time together. The whole village came out to see what these strangers had come to do for grandmother. They didn't recognize these guys. They knew that she didn't have any family, and they came from the big city of Kigali, and so they knew that something interesting was happening, and so they came out to see, to witness this. This last slide is a picture of them sitting together with grandmother there in the middle, and some of the young men who went to serve her. And church, this is a nice story, and it's a beautiful thing just in and of itself of what they went to do for her. But there is a deeper level to this story that you don't know today. Because here's the thing, church. Grandmother is a Hutu. A part of the group of people who committed the genocide. And those boys... Those young men who sought her out are Tutsis. They are survivors of the genocide. By the end of the weekend, she was so touched, grandmother was so touched by what these young men had come to do for her. She began to tell her uh, community members in the village, she said, these are my boys. And it goes even further because... The young man on the left in this picture, his name is Bunani. Bunani is getting ready to graduate university this year, which is an awesome thing. In the place where his murdered mother should rightfully sit, in the place where his family should be, he has no one now. He has invited grandmother to come sit As his mother. Praise God for the power of the kingdom of God, church. Church, that's what it means to forgive one another. So, uh, you've been there almost four years now. What have the Rwandans taught you that you might be able to share to bless us? I think, church, what, what the Rwandan people teach me and, and can teach us this morning is that they are a part of, of a cloud of witnesses that's out there that is experiencing the power of the kingdom of God coming in its fullness, challenging us and convicting us and changing us. And you see, the thing that Rwandans are faced with is the challenge to forgive. And they will teach the world how to forgive. They teach me what it means to forgive. The, the witness in Rwanda is that in the small things, in the things that we fuss and we fight about, sometimes we get hung up on, in those small things, forgiveness is imperative. We've got to forgive each other for the little things in life. And for the big things, the weighty things, the things of tragedy and of turmoil and pain that so many people experience, I think the witness in Rwanda teaches us that forgiveness is possible. If they can forgive, then I can too. And so can you. You know, the 
we are a part of these, this witness that demonstrate the unique relationships that we live in with a graceful God and His graceful people. That is your story. That's the story of our brothers and sisters in Rwanda. And that's the story that we all get to share in the kingdom of God coming in power, convicting and teaching and challenging us to forgive one another. Lord bless you, brothers and sisters. Thank Thank you, brother. It's an honor to be associated with what you're doing here. Thank you, brother. That's a pretty outrageous example of forgiveness. But I would argue that outrageous forgiveness is the norm for anotherers. In fact, to be able to forgive outlandishly, scandalously, unfairly, is to announce to the world that there is a new king in town. And we are going to do things his way. You see, anotherers make peace because they've already been crossed. You can't cross me. I've already been crossed. And I'm not going to find my identity in my wounds. And you know people like that who have been hurt and that's become their identity. And that's their story. And that's all they're ever going to be is their wound. But we don't find our identity in our wounds. We find our identity in the one who was wounded for us. We focus on what he did for us instead of what someone else has done to us. And that doesn't mean we don't act like it never happened, that we pretend it didn't hurt. It doesn't mean that we stay in a situation that's abusive and just let evil continue. It does mean that we stop trying to collect bills. And the thing is, when you finally free the person who hurt you, you find out that you actually liberated yourself. Some of you need to do that. You need to let go of chains from the past that you can't change. You can start over, but you have to stand under the cross. William Willimon says he was preaching one time on forgiveness. And when he was through, a woman began to walk toward him with a gait that he could tell was full of emotion. And she got right in his face. And she said, do I understand you to say that I should forgive my ex-husband who put me through hell for 10 years with constant abuse? And he immediately went into a defensive posture and said, well, you know, in one sermon, you can't cover the whole subject. And I certainly don't condone abuse. But then he said, but, but Jesus did say lots of odd things, didn't he? Like forgive 70 times 7 and forgive your enemy. And I can't think of a worse enemy than an abusive ex-husband. And she got right in front of him and said, good. I was just checking. (laughs) And in the next line he wrote, God, give me the grace as a preacher 
to not try to protect my people from Jesus. Wow. It is not my job to protect you from the outrageous expectations that Jesus has for you. They're not fair, but they're good. And you do not want to burn the very bridge that you so desperately need to cross yourself. Bow your heads. I want you now to get a visual image of at least one person in your life for whom you have hard feelings. Perhaps legitimate, but that's not the point. One person that owes you. You've got their face in mind right now. Spend a few moments with the Lord. Listen as he prompts you about what you should do next. Oh God, give us the grace and the courage to actually live the gospel, not just talk about it. In Jesus' name, amen.